You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. That was kind of weak. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. It's a joy to be together, isn't it? As we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you are a kindergartner, you are welcome to go off to Bible study with uh, Jamie and Beth over there. And so kindergartners, four and five-year-olds, you are welcome to head over that way. For the rest of us, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. If you are Visiting with us here this morning, we are thrilled that you are here. We've been working chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. And so today we find ourselves at the start of chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 7. So as you have your Bibles open, uh, follow along as I read God's Word. We'll pray, and then we'll begin. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage, we do so with utter seriousness because, Lord, we have gathered this day to worship you. And so, Father, may our hearts be on guard against our own sin as we enter into this place. Lord, may we not come with flippancy, with a lack of seriousness. But Lord, may we come in the holy and righteous fear of you, our holy God. And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, may we listen to your word. And may we learn to speak slowly as we come into your presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the most important things you will do as a parent is teaching your children to, re, uh, to, to speak and to listen, right? Foundational skills, important, right? So for us, if you come to the Dieter house, something you'll regularly hear us say often uh, is that you listen and obey the 
first time, right? Jude's looking at me because, you know, he, he hears it all the time, right? You listen and obey the first time, right? So when mom and dad give you something to say, you do it right away. We want to teach them to listen and to respond to the good and godly authority of their parents. Because listening for a kid is important. Because listening to that parent say no in the middle of that moment, that could be a moment of life and death, particularly when a toddler's running out into a busy street. They need to hear the word, listen right away, and respond. So we want our kids to listen, to be good listeners. But we also want to teach our kids to speak, right? How to speak well, to speak kindly, to speak with respect to those whom respect is due. So we, we labor over our children as parents to, to teach them how to listen rightly, how to speak rightly. And why is that? Well, because those skills are foundational for relationships, aren't they? If you can't listen, if you can't speak rightly to people, you're not going to have relationships. You're not going to be a fully formed, flourishing member of the human civilization, right? You're going to struggle because without hearing and without right talk, relationships become challenging, if not impossible. So we have to learn how to communicate with each other rightly. It's something we teach our children. It's one of those basic things we do as parents. And so here we are at Ecclesiastes. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we've considered all the vanity that is under the sun, and we've, we've taken the tour. And we've seen time and time again the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes pointing out that God has made us for himself. That we can't find meaning, we can't find purpose and satisfaction in this world. It has to come from God. God has placed an eternal longing in the hearts of his people to find him, to know him, to find satisfaction in him. So the preacher has been exposing over and over again throughout Ecclesiastes all the different ways that we try to find meaning in life under the sun. And how as we try to find meaning in this created world, it actually leads us further away from God. We become more isolated, more, more anxious, more, more in angst over the state of our souls. And so we looked a couple weeks ago, if you remember, so we looked at how sin breaks our relationships as human civilization, right? We've talked about oppression. We've talked about the selfishness. We've talked about greed and envy. We've talked about how sin brings isolation. All of this tainting issues of race and economics and community, we see that the relationships between human people are fractured because of sin. Now today, as we start chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, we will see how our sin can not only cause us to act foolishly with one another, but it can also cause us to act foolishly in our relationship with God, particularly as we give him the worship that he is rightfully due. We, we may have learned, and I hope you have, how to listen, and how to speak from your parents, but we must also learn how to listen and speak to God. And that's a skill I fear that many have not yet learned. We must learn to listen to God's word and we must let our words be few. We don't approach God as an equal. He is our authority. He is our creator. Instead, we must approach him with holy reverence and fear. So I strive for, of course, every sermon to be applicable to your life. 
but few sermons will be as immediately applicable (laughs) as what we're doing right here, because we're going to talk about how we approach God in worship as we worship him. That's what we're here to do. So right now, we are gathered before the Lord. And so I invite you to already open up your ears and listen to the word of God as we turn to Ecclesiastes 5 together. So the first thing I want to highlight for us, as you might expect, is we want to listen. Listen. Silencing our mouths and hearing God's word. We see this in verse 1 through 3, this first paragraph in our text today. Now look at how the the text begins in chapter 5, verse 1. The preacher gives us a warning, and it's a warning you need to heed, a warning you need to listen to. He says in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Now, here we find ourselves in this setting of worship, right? Enter into the original context, a Jewish person going to the temple, an Israelite approaching the temple of God, and at the temple, sinners would come into the presence of God, and they would come into the temple, and they would partake of the intercession of the priest, and they would offer their sacrifices according to the Levitical law. And in other places in the Bible, we know that approaching the temple and coming into the presence of God is an occasion of great joy. Psalm 122, for example, David says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's a joyful occasion. And as we approach God, we should be filled with gladness. And why is that? Well, because God is a a monsoon of grace and holiness and joy and love and pleasure. And so when we come into his presence, we, we are just drenched by his love and by his kindness to us. You see, the preacher, though, exposes a dangerous mood in our hearts that can take root as we come to God and worship. And what's that dangerous mood? It's the mood of flippancy. Flippancy. We can approach God so casually with such a mundane temperament that we sin against God by failing to take him seriously as God, as the creator, as the one to whom our worship is due. It means that you and I, we can come into worship and we can stumble through the motions of worship without ever considering the value of the one we've gathered to worship. Isn't that a sad state of our hearts that we can meander through the liturgy of worship on a Sunday morning without ever actually worshiping. Isn't that fearful? Instead of being glad and holy seriousness to come into the presence of God and worship him on Sunday morning, we can be apathetic about coming into the presence of God. Because we are prone to these sorts of dangers, because your heart is prone to these sorts of dangers. The preacher gives us a needed warning in verse one. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Now, why the word guard, right? When, when you walk into worship, even when you came into worship this morning, I hope none of you were fearful and expecting an attack, right? Greet the greeter is a little aggressive in passing out the bulletins, but she's not going to sucker punch you. I promise, right? We're, we're aggressive with our hospitality here, but you don't need to be on guard and protecting of your, your health, right? So, so what's going on here? What's the villain that we face when we come into worship? Well, it's not the greeting team. It's yourself. It's your heart. That's the villain that you need, you need to be on watch for. That's the villain. It's right in the mirror. Look in the mirror. This is what you need to be on guard against, your own fickle and cold and flippant heart as you come in to worship the Lord. 
You see, when we come to worship, it's, it's fascinating listening to people talk about worshiping the Lord and even people finding churches. We, we are quick to try to find an enemy of why we're not worshiping. And that enemy is always not us, right? So when you go and you worship, you hear people think, say things like, well, you know, if only the music was more my style, right? then, then I'll worship. Or, you know, if, if only the preacher was more engaging and he didn't use such big words all the time, well, then maybe, maybe I could really, really worship. Or if only, you know, the temperature of the room was just three degrees cooler, I could be a little more honed in and focused, and then my heart would really be engaged. Isn't it silly how petty we are, right? We can find all sorts of excuses for why our hearts aren't engaged in worshiping, and it's always somebody else's fault. It's never, never my fault. Yet the preacher says, guard yourself, guard yourself when you approach the house of God. You see, listen carefully, whenever, wherever there's the right preaching and expositing of God's word in a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can worship. You can worship and you ought to worship. You must worship. So when you come to church on Sunday morning, you need to be on guard against the evils that lurk within your own heart and be mindful of them. You see, look at verse uh, the next verse here, the second part of verse one, we know the preacher is talking about these internal matters because look at what he says at the end of verse one. He says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. Now, now here's the specific temptation that we really have to be on guard against. Fools go through the motions of worship without actually drawing near to humbly listen to the Lord. You see, the danger of the fool in worship on a Sunday morning like this, the danger of the fool is they don't realize they're being foolish. They don't realize that they're being flippant and cavalier as they approach the Lord in worship. And they don't realize that by actually being here, they're committing evil against God, not praising God. You can sin by attending worship. The problem identified here seems to be a, a recurring one in the pattern of Israel's history. It appears over and over again in the Old Testament. It was so easy for them to master Leviticus, to know the laws, and to simply just go through the motions, to bring their sacrifices, to do their duty. And all the while, they're just going through their emotions. Their hearts are cold. They're resistant. They're, they're, they're unloving towards God. They're distanced towards them. We call this the danger of formalism in the Christian life. This sort of going through the motions is a sense of, this is what God expects of me to do, so I better do it, X, Y, Z, and then I'm done. And then our hearts are all the well unengaged with the Lord. You see, David recognizes this all over the place. It, 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 he understood, right, in Psalm 51, the passage we read at the start of our sermon this morning, he understood that the sacrificial system was not a spiritual performance. That's not what God was pleased by. It's not spiritual performance, but spiritual contrition that God is after. So Psalm 51, remember what he said, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The, the preacher uh, makes a similar point here in our text, that of Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen the fat of rams. 
You see, Israel's constant mistake is the same mistake that so many Christians make today, is that we think that all God wants for us is the external action of worship without the internal humility of listening to God. Derek Kidner, a commentator, he's put it this way. He said, the preacher targets the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets around to what he has volunteered to do for God. That's the sort of person in the crosshair of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So how do we be on guard against this? This is a temptation all of us will face over the course of our lives. So how do we be on guard against this foolishness of formalism in our lives? Well, we listen. (laughs) That's how we do it. We listen. And I mean, you really listen. Listen like you're sitting on the edge of your seat listening to your favorite team win the championship on the radio, right? You're, You're engaged. You're listening. You're interested. You are excited to hear what is coming up. You're not not withdrawing, you're not closing your ears, you're not taking a nap, right? You're you're engaged, you're listening actively. The preacher says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Draw near to listen is better than offering sacrifice. What you can most do to honor God today is not put money in the offering box when you walk out, but to actually pay attention right now. Listen to what God's word has to say. And he continues in verse two, look at verse two and three. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. As the old adage goes, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. You see, when we come to worship the Lord, we should have that quiet frame of heart. We must come with a quiet heart, a heart eager and ready to listen to God. Christian, don't you realize that the ear is the primary sense organ in the Christian life. We must listen. If we hope to approach God rightly, if we want to worship him rightly today, then we must begin by stilling our tongues and opening our ears. When you walk into church on a Sunday morning like this, do you find yourself in that sort of posture of heart, a posture ready to listen to God's word? At Redemption Church, we try to make everything we do centered around the proclamation of God's word. From scripture reading to song selection to our prayers, we want everything to be filled with God's word. We want to give you ample opportunity to hear from God's word when we gather to worship. But ask yourself the question, am I listening to that word? Are my ears attentive to the message that I will hear from God's word right here, right now? Are my ears clogged with distraction? Is my heart ready to receive God's word, no matter how encouraging and sweet it may be, as speaking from comfort from 2 Corinthians 1, or maybe as convicting as it may be from Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Am I ready to to hear from God's word, no matter what God's word has to tell me? Am I going to listen to what the Spirit is teaching me? I, I fear that so many who attend church every week are like, as one teacher One preacher put it, he said, people are like headless chickens going through the motions of worship without ever getting our minds engaged. Why must we listen to God? 
Why is this so important? Why should we have this heart posture of listening attentively to God's word when we gather to worship? Well, the preacher shows us why. God is God and you are not, right? That part, part of listening rightly means that we understand who we are gathering to worship. So approaching this God, the God that we have gathered here to worship today, uh, approaching him with hastiness, that's a foolish thing to do. And so the preacher takes some gold water and douses it on your slumbering face so you can kind of realize who you're here to worship. He says, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Remember your place. Remember who you are speaking to. Of course, God is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere. He is just as present on earth as he is in heaven. But the preacher is emphasizing the distinction between the creator and his creation, between God and humanity. You see, as depraved and rebellious humans, we can speak so brashly to God, can't we? We can talk to him with such pride and arrogance as we come to him, often find ourselves rebuking God with that sort of accusatory tone. But yet those who rightly fear the Lord understand their place. They understand who they are and they understand who God is. We don't stand above God to judge him. We must prostrate ourselves before him with humble listening, attentive and ready to hear what he will say. Indeed, as we look back over chapters three and four, we've, we've witnessed so much evil that takes place over the sun. And sometimes we do wrestle with God's providence over the seasons of our lives. God, what are you doing right now in such moments and such questions that we have? We sometimes wonder and question, why does God permit what happens under the sun to happen to us? But yet, instead of throwing our accusations like spears to God, we must realize how finite we are, how small we are, we must turn our ear in humility to the infinite God who alone can help us and who can comfort us. We must listen to God. Blaise Pascal gave a word I wish not only every philosopher would read, but one I wish every Christian would read as well. Here's what he said about being a human being. He says, know then, proud man, what a paradox you are to yourself. Be humble, impotent reason. Be silent, feeble nature. Hear from your master your true condition, which is unknown to you. Listen to God. Listen to God. There's the starting point for all wisdom. Wisdom that many philosophers do not grasp. We have to realize who we are, humble ourselves, and listen to God. Indeed, that's the answer to all of our philosophical musings. That's the, the answer to all of our existential wrestlings. That's the answer to all of our nagging dots, doubts and questions. Simply be quiet, keep your mouth shut, and listen to what God has said, what he has spoken in his word. Don't be hasty to utter a word against God. Listen to the God in heaven. The church father, Gregory of Nyssa, said this. He said, knowing how widely the divine nature differs from our own, let us then quietly remain within our proper limits. I like that. Know how to remain in your proper limit. So the question then, how, how do we listen to God? If listening to God is foundational for true Christian worship, it's the safeguard against our own foolishness and flippancy as we come to worship him, how do we do it? Well, as you might guess, we listen to God by filling our minds with the Bible. We listen to God by filling our minds with the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. 
It's the word of God, and it's the means of grace that God has given us to teach us, to instruct us, to transform us by his grace. So we have to develop the habit of taking up the means of the word of God, both in private and in public. Starts in private. Starts with you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, creating and developing a Bible reading habit, which includes times of meditating on the scripture, That part of genuinely listening to the word of God in private is not simply giving it a cursory reading and then moving on with the news, but slowing down, meditating, and listening on what God has said. Be like the man in Psalm 1 who meditates on the word of God both day and night. We should also take up the public means of the word of God as we listen, particularly when we gather for worship which is why one of the most important things to consider if you're looking for a church home is, is the word of God preached? Is it expounded upon? Is it taught clearly? Is it merely just a little sprinkle on top of the people's worship? Or is it the sum and substance of what the people have gathered to do? To hear from God's word. So the public means of the word is vital, vital for true Christian worship. You must sit under the teaching of the Bible when you come. And you must lay open your heart as you listen. And you must engage and consider and reflect and contemplate about what you are hearing taught from God's word. You need to have your Bible open on your lap and ready to hear what God will say from his word. See, part part of the challenging of listening to God's word that we deal with, even in a corporate worship setting like this, part of the challenge is just the constant distractions in our lives. Prevents us from listening. So, so much of what we deal with is, is, is dealing with these distractions. Look at what the preacher says in verse 3. The preacher speaks of something, uh, uh, this sort of flapping of the mouth of the fool. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. You see, when we fill our lives up with business, with activity, with a lot of to-do activities, a lot of hobbies, a lot of things to run the kids to. You see, all of that vanity under life under the sun actually fuels our, our dreams, our imagination, if you will, what we desire. Right? Our work produces the vanity of busy dreams. And so too does a fool's voice be filled with many words. One commentator put it this way. He said that it is as natural for the fool to be as verbose as it is for dreams to come to those who toil pointlessly for gain. Overproduction is the root problem in both cases. A heart attentive to God neither toils nor words. You see, when our minds are filled with empty dreams of fulfillment in this world, right? When you're trying to find meaning and purpose in life under the sun, our words against God become sharp and accusatory and mean, right? There, there's this, an absurdity to this. As we raise our accusations to God, we, as we say things like, God, why, why didn't you give me that job promotion that I really wanted? Or God, why did you, how dare you not provide a spouse for me yet? I'm almost 30, right? Or why do we say things like, you know, God, why, why didn't you give me that, that house that I really wanted? We have this accusation towards God. You see, when our dreams are crushed, Our idols are exposed and our words become many. You see, there is a need to realize that when our dreams collapse, those idols come out and we must be on guard because in that foolishness, our words do become many 
instead of wise and few. You see, before this holy God, the, the, the text is driving home that our words must be few. We have to engage a, an ear that's ready to listen to God, and we can't march in and out of worship with our ears half-closed, going through the motion, oblivious to the ways we arrogantly treat God as this sort of genie in a bottle to accomplish our wills. May we instead fear and tremble before our holy God. And because of that, may we think carefully about what we say and what we speak, particularly when it comes to making vows. And that leads to secondly this morning, speaking, fearing our God with the vows we make. See this in the second paragraph, verse four through seven. The, the same glib mood that we have when listening to God can also manifest itself in the ways we speak to God. We've already heard the caution raised in that first paragraph to not be hasty in the words we speak before God. Our words must be few, carefully considered. But as the preacher begins discussing making vows to God, he, he expands further about not just guarding our ears, but also guarding our mouths when we come to worship the Lord. Look at what he says in verse four. The preacher warns, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. So when we make a commitment to God to do something, we must follow through with that commitment. Indeed, the promise we make to God is of such seriousness, such weightiness, that the preacher says that it's better to not make a vow at all than to make a vow and then not pay it. You see, what the preacher likely has in mind is some sort of particular offering, maybe a free will offering given by an Israelite saying, I'm going to give this, or maybe he's talking about the Nazarite vow here in a sense. And such vows were often made publicly to the priests. And a rash vow made in haste could lead to sin against the Lord. Look at, look at what the text says in verse 6. It says, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You see, a rash vow could lead you into sin against God and lead to God's judgment. See, a person who doesn't follow through with their commitments can't be trusted nor respected, can they? And as Christians, we have a biblical command to be filled with truthfulness, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. When we say we're going to do something, we need to mean it and we need to do it. And Jesus emphasizes that important principle of truthfulness in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Jesus cautions against taking an oath. But if you have to swear to God or if you have to swear on the grave of your mother, then there's something already gone awry with your heart and life that you have to say such things because you can't be trusted. You see, Jesus admonishes us as believers to let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So if it's a sin to make a commitment to a brother or sister and then flake out, how much more egregious is it to sin by making a commitment against God and then not doing it? The sin compounds the shame depending on the preciousness of the one we offend. So you might wake up this morning and you might promise that you're going to take your dog out for a walk before you go to church and then you lied and you forgot about it. But it's different when you make a promise to your wife or your spouse or your husband, right? And you say to them, I'm going to do this, and then you lie. Which one is more egregious of a sin, lying to your dog or lying to your wife? Same with God. How much more sinful is it to break a commitment, a promise that you have made to God? By God's grace, we must be the sort of people who think 
seriously about the commitments we make to God, and we must follow through with those commitments, particularly when those commitments are made to God himself. You you get the sense of how devilish it can be, these failed commitments are. Look at verse 6, right? When the priest's messenger comes back to check on the promised vow, what seems to be going on here? Well, it seemed that for a time in Israel's history, there were tithe inspectors, messengers from the temple who followed up on your offering pledge to make sure that you followed through. Now, don't worry. I've already suggested making this an an idea, a ministry for the elders to consider for our building campaign, but they already shot me down. So don't don't get angsty here. But but the messengers would come along and they they would do that. They would say, hey, now you vowed, you promised, you pledged to bring an offering to the Lord. How's that vow coming along? Are you going to follow through with your commitment? They would ask. But yet us notice how squirmy the human heart can be. Isn't this so much like us, right? How, how we try to finagle out of our commitment. The text says, it was a mistake, <laughs> right? It was a mistake. I didn't really mean it, right? We so easily say, well, you know, I, I never made a vow for that. I was just sort of talking at the temple and I kind of said some things to God, but I didn't really mean it. Or, you know, the preacher just preached a really good sermon and I was feeling a little emotionally convicted. And so I said, God, I would do this. And then, you know, I didn't really mean it well, you know, things are challenging right now. I've lost my job. And so, you know, I can't, can't really follow through. Circumstances are changed. I can't do what I promised God I would do. Isn't it so funny how we self-rationalize making excuses as we make commitments to God and then break them? Flattering words with flaky commitments fail to grasp what it means to fear the Lord rightly. When Christians talk, we should avoid taking oaths right? That's not something we should normally do. But there is a place for publicly making vows. And there is a place for that. Consider your wedding day when you make a vow before God and all those witnesses to marry that individual. You commit to your spouse as long as you both shall live. And when you make such a vow before God and before all those witnesses, you don't just say, well, you know, it was a mistake. Don't love each other anymore. Moving on. Right? No, that's, there's a seriousness to the wedding vows, a public commitment before God that we do not take lightly. Or consider when you decide to become a member of a church. Consider when you become a member of Redemption Church and you sign the covenant of Redemption Church. Think carefully about the seriousness of that. You don't rationalize it away. So consider your commitment. Do you grow negligent in keeping your commitment that you made to God and his people? Do you rationalize it away? Do you think, well, do I I really need to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over the members of the body? Do I really not need to forsake the assembly of the church on Sundays? Do I really need to contribute cheerfully and joyfully to the church work and support the ministry of the church? If you're a covenant member, then the answer is yes. Yes, you have made a vow before God and a commitment to this body to do so. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, words spoken to God and promises made to him are so significant that it's better not to make the commitment at all than to face God's judgment for lying to him. Ask Ananias and Sapphira how that worked out for them. Charles Bridges, I think, gives a good commentary, good word, a good counsel for how we as Christians should make commitments to God. I think he gives some helpful practical advice. Let me read what he wrote. He said, indeed, this subject of vows requires a very careful and delicate treatment. A solemn engagement advisedly made with God is a transaction needing much prayer and consideration. 
It should rest upon the clear warrant of God's word. It should concern a matter really important, suitable, and attainable. It should be so limited as to open a way for disentanglement under unforeseen contingencies or altered circumstances. Now, that's some old language that we have a hard time understanding. But what is he saying here? Because I think it's really helpful and, and really practical. He says, one, a commitment made to God should be made with much prayer and consideration. You don't just hastily jump into it and just say, hey, I want to do this. No, it needs to be a prayerful commitment, he says, made in light of God's word. Right? There needs to be biblical warrant for the commitment that you're making. But he also says, and this is so practical and helpful, that the commitment we make to God should be attainable and limited. Meaning, an attainable vow is a vow that you can actually follow through, right? It does nobody any good and is just a, a pointless sin to commit to God that you're going to give a million dollars if you don't have a million dollars, right? That kind of makes sense. Don't make unrealistic commitments that you can't follow through to God. They must be limited, and they must anticipate the sort of future disentanglements that may significantly alter your circumstances. So don't commit to doing something indefinitely if you're not going to do it indefinitely. Be very careful. Be very discerning as you make commitments to the Lord. And be sure to follow through those commitments when you make them. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes gives a warning when it comes to speaking to God. Don't be rash. Don't be brash. Don't be hasty in your speech or in your commitments to him. Consider carefully what commitments you make to God, lest you experience his judgment and he destroy the work of your hands. Now we return in verse 7 to this topic of dreams again, similar to the point made in verse 3. He says, for when dreams increased and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. We have to be warned against the vain delusion of our dreams. It's easy to live in this imaginary world rather than the real one. Think carefully about the commitments you make to God. You may imagine, oh, I can do this for God, or I can do that for God. I can make all these sort of lofty promises. But when dreams increase, words grow many. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, and live your life in holy fear before your creator, God. The fear of the Lord is the culmination of the book of Ecclesiastes. You've been with us to this series. You know that all throughout the book, the preacher leaves breadcrumbs leading us to the end. Chapter 12, verse 13, the book's ultimate conclusion, where he tells us, fear God and keep his commandments. You see, the message of Ecclesiastes, as meandering as it can feel, it's a journey that leads us to the doorstep of Proverbs. That's exactly what the book is. Fear the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is foundational for what it means to live the Christian life. John Murray said the fear of God is the soul of godliness. John Owen, the Puritan, said the fear of the Lord means the whole worship of God, moral and instituted, all the obedience which we owe to him. Indeed, the fear of the Lord is is what the preacher is trying to help us sense in our own souls today as we have gathered to worship the Lord. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So humble yourself and listen to his words. Listen with humility, and be careful as you speak, as you make promises to the Lord, that you might not sin against him by failing to meet them. We must live with this constant recognition in our lives of God's holiness 
his tender mercy, his fearsome justice, his lavish love, his omnipotent wrath. Indeed, the fear of the Lord is the response of faith to God's fully orbed and biblically revealed character. God is not who you make him to be. God is who he has revealed himself to be. And the fear of the Lord is the right response of faith to who God is. And so we listen and speak to God with this posture of fearing the Lord. Now, of course, we struggle to fear the the Lord rightly, don't we? We often don't do so. We're born in sin. And as sinners, we tend to scoff at God. We reject his reign. We thumb our noses at him. And every one of us has lived as fools, sinful fools, rebels, treason. We've committed all of this before our holy God. And there is only one who lived in the perfect fear of the Lord. Only one who perfectly listened to God. Only one who spoke without sin. His name is Jesus. Isaiah prophesies about him. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 through 3, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You see, look at the life of Jesus. Go read through the Gospels. In the life of Christ, we see him constantly listening with the fear of the Lord. We see Jesus described in the Gospels as waking up early for prayer, to be in his Father's presence, to listen to his Father. As Jesus spoke, he spoke in the fear of the Lord. He said in John chapter 12, he said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. You see, in Jesus, we see the man, the only man, who has perfectly feared the Lord. In fact, Jesus tells us that he and the Father are one. See, the only way that we can rightly fear the Lord is through Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, our worship will be impossible, and it will always be faulty and stained with sin. Our hearing is going to be clogged. Our words will be lies. The proper response to the Lord is to humble yourself before this holy God and cry out in faith for Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Perhaps you've treated God repeatedly over the course of your life as a servant under your boot. You've scoffed at him. You've gotten angry at him. But today, as you've heard God's word preached, as you're listening with attentiveness to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, you are beginning to recognize your place. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Today, I invite you to fear the Lord your God, to turn from your sin, to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The one who rightly feared the Lord was crushed by the wrath of the Lord for your sake. That's the good news of the gospel, that the one who listened to the Father with complete obedience died for those who rebelled in complete disobedience, that the word made flesh who spoke truth was crucified for those who spewed lies against God. Consider Christ, the substitute for sinners, the redeemer of our souls. If you have gathered here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to worship the Lord rightly, first come to Jesus. 
Turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. And if you know God's saving grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been enabled by his Holy Spirit to rightly fear the Lord, then you can this morning, as a Christian, rightly worship the Lord today. You can rightly worship him. But even as Christians, enabled by this holy fear, by the gift of faith, we must be on guard against our sinful hearts, particularly when we worship. We have to listen to God with humble hearts. May we speak to him with holy fear. Let me me share with you a poem by a guy named T.M. Moore, a poem that actually paraphrases the, the passage of scripture before us. Here's what he wrote. Remember, God knows everything. He knows our hearts when we before him bring our worship and you can't fool him. So take a good look at yourself before you make your next appearance before the Lord. And go to listen, not to speak, for he will know just what you need. Why, any fool can spout a lovely prayer or sing a hymn about his faith. His words are mindless, like a dream, although to people looking on they seem impressive, not to God. For words are cheap, just like the dreams you have while you're asleep. God wants your heart, my son, not just to show. Get right with him before you to him go. You see, we must, we must examine our hearts before the Lord as we come to worship him. So ask yourself those hard questions. Am I listening to God today? Am I rightly fearing the Lord as I speak to him in prayer and in worship? And that if you've come cold and callous and indifferent to worship the Lord this day, then I urge you and I plead with you to repent of that sin. The sin of coming here with flippancy and coldness and and hard-heartedness to the Lord. Let your heart be stirred this morning by God's rebuke from his word so that you may find and cherish the comforts that are available to you in Jesus Christ. So let us worship him right now. This morning, as Redemption Church is gathered, and may we commit before God today to never assemble with the church without first preparing our hearts to come to listen and to speak with the holy fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are aware, so painfully so, of our own wicked and rebellious hearts. Lord, how easy it is for us to come in and come out, to go through the routine and the motions of worship with our heart completely unengaged, thinking that all you want for us is just the performance of worship. Lord, I pray that you would break us of that sin, that you would convict us of that sin, and Lord, that you would fill us with holy and contrite hearts before you. Lord, that we would be broken of our sin and realize like David did as he confessed his sin, that you do not delight in sacrifice or we would bring it. Or the sacrifice that you most love, you most cherish, Lord, is the sacrifice of a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, oh Lord, you do not despise. Father, may we come before you with this brokenness. Or may we not respond puffed up in pride and with clogged ears, failing to listen to your word thinking we know what to do, we know how to do it. But Lord, may we humble ourselves before you. May we listen carefully to your word. And Lord, may you work by your spirit to convict us of our sin. 
and to lead us to the right fear of the Lord that helps us to listen and speak with a proper recognition that you are God and we are not. Father, I pray that Redemption Church, as we go month by month, week by week, as we regularly worship you together, when I pray that you would protect us of coldness and formalism and going through the motions of worship. Lord, as familiar as these routines become, Lord, may we not grow apathetic as we worship. But Lord, may our hearts be reengaged week after week, song after song, sermon after sermon, scripture reading after scripture reading, prayer after prayer, table after table. As we come to you, Lord, may you ignite our hearts. May you stir our affections to cherish and to love and to savor all the precious truths of the gospel that you have given us by your mercy and grace. Lord, we pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. And Lord, that you would lead us to repentance this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.